Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing great, Pete. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm so glad you're here with me. So before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, today we have an awesome special episode for you on management of the subscapularis during total shoulder arthroplasty. This has become somewhat of a controversial topic. It's one of interest to basically everyone who does shoulder replacements. And we even invited two internationally renowned experts who've really devoted an incredible amount of effort to studying this topic onto the podcast. So first we have Dr. Peter Lappner, who's Director of Research for Orthopedic Surgery Division of the Ottawa Hospital at Canada. Uh, Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Really nice to be here. Uh, next, we have uh, Dr. George Athwell, who's a professor of orthopedic surgery at uh, Schulich at uh, London, Ontario. George, welcome to the podcast. Uh, pleasure to be here. Okay, let's start with why this matters. So, Peter, tell us how frequently the subscapular repair fails in a total shoulder arthroplasty. And when it does, does it matter for the result for the patient? So, I, I think it does. So, in, in terms of um, the uh, the actual incidents, I, I don't think that we've got great numbers on that. Suzanne Miller and Evan Flato published a paper back in, I think it was 2002, and they reported on uh, 67% of their cohort, two-thirds, had an abnormal belly press test on physical examination. So I think that really drew people's attention to this as a very significant issue. But if we're really interested in, in the true prevalence, I think we need to look at the randomized control trials. And part of the issue is that the frequency of clinical failure is, is low. And so it's hard to get, you know, real numbers on this. In the trial, the second trial that we did, the tenotomy peel study, the incidence of clinical failure. And I, and the other point here is that I think we need to distinguish clinical failure from radiologic failure, because I think those are two different things. Clinical failure probably happens in about 2% of cases. Um, and Bill Levine published a study two years ago looking at osteotomy and tenotomy. And in his series, it was um, 3% and 6% for clinical failure, depending on the technique, and about double that for the radiologic failure. So I think the answer to the question is it probably happens between 2 and 3% in terms of clinical failure and radiologic failure probably two or three times higher than that. So I think that double numbers really begs the question of, you know, there is there this population of people for whom radiographically it fails, but it doesn't matter. How frequently, so I guess like it begs the question, when there's a clinical failure, does that influence the results? Do you think for those patients that maybe say things are going fine, but there's a radiographic failure, is there a difference in the clinical outcomes we might be able to detect that maybe the patient doesn't know? Well, I, I think so. Um, so we looked at the, in, in, in the, the study that we, that we just completed, the, the tenotomy peel study, one of the interesting findings was that we looked at the functional outcome scores, the WOOS scores in patients who were not able to maintain the elbow in line with the wrist. And those that were not able to do that, where the elbow fell back, had WOOS scores about 20 points lower 
than the ones that we're able to maintain the elbow in line with the wrist. So I think it does have functional implications. But I, I think that you're right. There is still quite a difference between overt clinical failure where patients have gross instability, which I think tends to elicit as very significant pain, um, limitations in mobility and dysfunction, as opposed to those with radiologic failure. In other words, we detect it on ultrasound or even just as a subtle clinical sign, like I was just alluding to. Those patients, I think, do suffer functionally, but it, it's, it's a much less significant problem. George, tell us, if a failure occurs, what are your options at this point, and how well do these options work? I mean, I guess it all depends on how you define failure. I think uh, many times, Peter just mentioned this, many times uh, you'll have a patient that's doing very well, and you get an x-ray and you see that the humeral head is subluxated anteriorly. And, and for, all, for all intents and matters, they're doing uh, remarkably well. And then you have patients that have instability, and then you have patients that have failure to subscapulate without instability. I think certainly for patients uh, that I treat that have instability with subscap failure and have symptomatic instability, I don't think that can be managed effectively with tendon transfers or uh, any sorts of other soft tissue operations, revision repair. For me, those are in general, the majority of cases are revision to reverse. In, in the patients that have subscap failure and the joint's not subluxated, it's well reduced. Um, if, I, if it occurs very quickly, I mean, if I can identify it quickly within the first couple weeks, I've attempted repair on those and I would say I'm satisfied with the outcomes. The interesting thing, I had a patient that I think presented about, it was about maybe five or six weeks after arthroplasty. Uh, I was doing something, felt a pop. And after five or six weeks, it was very challenging for me to mobilize the subscap. So it's surprising how much it had retracted. I couldn't mobilize. And this was a young physician. So I find that any sort of delayed presentation with a subscap rupture, I, I don't think a repair is possible. And then you have this, these sort of tendon transfer operations, which I'm not sure how much they add um, to the subscap repair or subscap, especially if there's no instability. Um, I think in broad senses, I have to divide it up into are they unstable or are not unstable? Does that, does that make sense? Chris, yeah, I think so. So I think we've established here that failure is maybe not uncommon, at least radiographically, this occurs in some series in excess of 10% that it probably does nickel influence results, that your revision options aren't always great, that redoing it doesn't, you know, like if there's any delay presentation that doesn't work, often you're talking about a reverse if there's instability. So let's talk now about what is under your control as a surgeon, which is how you take down the subscapularis and how you repair it. And I wanna start with the takedown. So there's a couple of options here. I wanna go through them. Peter, tell us about our first option, the lesser tuberosity osteotomy. What's good about this? What's bad about it? What, why do you like it or dislike it? So I think what's good about it is that at least in theory, we end up with a situation where we have bone to bone healing, and that may have implications in terms of ultimately how well the subscapularis fares, and it may have implications down the road in the situation of revision surgery. And that's not something that, that we've proven, but it, it's just something that I suspect. Now, technically, I think that it is more difficult then the other two options, it involves an osteotome and without any doubt, there is a bit of a learning curve. So it adds a little bit of time to surgery. I think the repair probably takes a little bit longer. 
And as I say, there's a bit of a learning curve as well. So, so for those reasons, I think that people have been a little bit slower to adopt it. On the plus side, it may be that it results in slightly higher healing rates. We didn't show that in our randomized trial, but there was a bit of a shortcoming in the methodology that we used. We used CT scan, which is probably not an ideal way to look at the peel group. Um, Bill Levine published a nice study two year, uh, in 2019 looking at osteotomy versus tenotomy, and the healing rates were slightly higher in the osteotomy group compared with the tenotomy group. But interestingly, that didn't manifest as um, any differences in strength or functional outcomes. So right across the board, the functional scores were, were really very similar between the two groups. George, what about the peel? What is good about this option? What's bad about this option? Any any personal preferences on this versus the other options? Well, uh, well, after having done uh, all of our randomized prospective studies, comparing all these different approaches, I've come to settle on the peel. And the reason I settle on the peel, I, I find it's easy to teach. Uh, I'm essentially telling my residents and fellows to detach the tendon directly off the bone. So that's one of the advantages. I, I do believe it is a, a lot easier to teach a person. Second thing is it does give you some versatility. So if you have a, a contracted shoulder, you can advance and move it a little bit more medial. Uh, and then the disadvantage is essentially you've created a rotator cuff tear now. So you're going to have the tendon to bone healing issue, which if, if you look at a lot of the healing studies, um, we don't have any definitive evidence that it is worse than any of the others. So right now, uh, in 2022, March, <laughs> I'm doing appeal, uh, but that may change uh, as more evidence becomes available. And then Peter, let's follow up with the last one, the tenotomy. What's the good, the bad about this final option? Well, it, it, it's the incumbent, right? It's the, it's the option that I think most people learn is probably most commonly taught in the training centers in North America. And I think that the reason that, that people tend to fall to that option is just its simplicity. It, it's a single vertical incision. It's a side-to-side -side repair. So I think just by virtue of its simplicity, it, it's gained a lot of traction. And as George alluded to, we don't really have any evidence to suggest that it's any inferior, that it's inferior in any way to the other options, uh, except for that little bit of data that we were talking about earlier in terms of healing rates. Now, Peter, you said you described the peel or the I'm sorry, the tenotomy as a single vertical incision. Do you do you think there's any role here for a chevron or maybe something more complicated geometrically? Uh, what what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that isn't something that I've explored. Uh, be interested in George's thoughts on that. I, I've only ever done um, a straight incision directly down to the bone, about a centimeter medial to the insertion, and that leaves enough tissue to obtain a solid repair, but I haven't, I haven't explored any other options, although that is interesting. Yeah. I know Laurent LaFosse has been doing that for quite some time now, doing sort of a chevron tenotomy just to increase the kind of essentially the surface area of tendon to tendon, to tendon healing. Uh, he hasn't studied it yet. So, I mean, uh, it, it, it makes logical sense. Uh, but what's interesting with all these randomized prospective studies, Peter, wouldn't you say we had, a, we were biased and we thought one thing would be better than the other. And when it came down to a critical analysis of the data, they all ended up being equivalent. So although the, the Chevron may, may make logical sense right now, if you end up studying it, it may no show, show no difference. So it's just, you just gotta keep an open mind. 
Let me ask both of you guys, do you think any of these approaches, the LTO, the PO, the tenotomy, makes future revisions any any more difficult or any easier? And do you ever think about that, particularly if you're working on a young patient where revision might be in the mix just due to their age and longevity of the implants? Do you change your subscap management at that initial surgery, thinking that this might make it easier or more difficult for the revision? Uh, uh, George, let's start with you on that one. Sure. I mean, I've I've heard people say that uh, they felt that their approach was uh, easier during revision, and I've I do a fair number of revisions, and I've revised tenotomies, peels, and osteotomies, and I personally haven't found a huge difference between them. Uh, when I was a fellow, I worked with uh, Bob Cofield, and how Cofield used to repair his tenotomy was with number two Vicryl, so he used Vicryl figure of eight sutures, and when we go back in to do a revision for say a posterior superior cuff tear. The subscap looked pristine because the micro sutures resorbed and it didn't seem to be any difficult any more difficult than anything else so right now i gotta say i don't i don't personally think any one is more challenging than the other when it comes to revision and peter how about you any thoughts on that do you do you change your approach especially if you think you might have to do a revision down the road so i i haven't and i i agree with george i haven't noticed any difference between the three techniques um we recently completed an analysis of the ultrasound data from the tenotomy peel trial. And one of the things that we were interested in looking at was whether or not one of the soft tissue techniques or the other might be more deleterious to the health of the tendon. So we looked at the thickness of the tendon, the centimeter medial to the insertion, just over the medial part of the um, lesser tuberosity. And hoping, think the thinking being that, that thickness was a surrogate, potentially a surrogate measure for how healthy, if you will, that tendon is. And what we found between the tenotomy and the peel was that the tendon thickness was almost identical between the two groups. So I don't think that we can say that peeling it or tenotomizing it necessarily results in a less healthy tendon. That question would be interesting to look at comparing one of the soft tissue techniques to an osteotomy. And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Kind of the other thing I've heard mentioned by many surgeons is that there are particular techniques that provide you with better or worse um, glenoid exposure. And certainly my mentors always taught me that the whole, the whole case is your exposure of the glenoid and everything you do up to that point should be about improving your glenoid exposure. Peter, do you think that there's a difference between these three in terms of your glenoid exposure? If you have a big B2, does that affect your approach to the subscapularis or no? I don't think so. So for me, I, I've never noticed any difference in terms of glenoid exposure. What I have noticed, though, is that there tends to be a little bit more of a challenge for the humeral exposure with an osteotomy in that if you take a bit of a thicker uh, slice of bone and it because it ends up medially when you dislocate the humerus and the cut surface is now in front of you, it's, I find it is a little bit more difficult to manage that in terms of removing the osteophytes, for example, medially and postero-medially. It's not an insurmountable problem, but it, it was something that I remember noticing earlier in the learning curve when I started osteotomizing the, the lesser. Hey, Peter, what I, do you I, think, I do a, I could, Yeah, I can do a follow-up on yeah. that. Uh, I know uh, Bill Levine... Uh, in his study showed that he felt that glenoid exposure was better, but I think it all comes down to how you expose the glenoid. So the technique that I use to expose the glenoid is, is I make, so once I do my humeral head osteotomy, I 
essentially externally rotate my humerus so the cut surface is essentially parallel to the back surface of the glenoid bulb. So if I have an osteotomy, my osteotomy isn't pointing directly at me. So it's not actually improving my field of view with the type of exposure I do. However, if you're a neutral, if you keep your humerus neutral, or you keep it in internal rotation, then because now you've decreased the anterior to posterior width of it, it could potentially help you. Uh, but certainly for me, the way I expose my glenoid doesn't help me. Now, both of you guys have collaborated to do some of really the landmark studies comparing all of these options. We'd love to ask both of you briefly, what, what can you tell us about these studies? Tell our listeners if they haven't read them, which I'm assuming all of our listeners have read them, but summarize them for us. What have you found? Um, is there a current consensus as to which of the options is best in terms of managing the subscap? Uh, George, let's start with you. Well, what I was going to do, if it's okay with you, I'm going to let Peter start. The reason is, is that uh, all of these studies were Peter's idea. Uh, and, and I was just grateful that he included me in his, in these studies. He's the PI on these studies and, and, uh, a good friend of mine. So I'm just really happy that he included me. So I'm going to give Peter the, 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 the first chance at this. Well, th thanks George. I mean, there, there's no way that I, we could have gotten these done without you and your team. So, um, so just to briefly summarize, so Rachel, so the first study was the osteotomy versus peel study. So we randomized 87 patients to a lesser tuberosity osteotomy or a peel. We followed everyone for two years. Everyone got a CT scan at a minimum of 12 months postoperatively. And the main outcome was subscapularis strength that we looked at in the belly press position, a bit of a modified belly press position where we had the electronic dynamometer on the sternum because we couldn't get a reading on the stomach. And so we, we just cheated upward a little bit. So for the main outcome, which was strength, we didn't find any difference whatsoever for the, between the two groups. And then we looked at the various functional outcome scores, the constant and the woos. And again, we didn't find any differences. When it came to healing, we looked at the, the CT scan. And I think there was one, if I remember correctly, patient who had a non-union at 12 months. But as far as we could tell, with the metal artifact reduction sequences, we looked as carefully as we could at the healing in the peel group, and, and, and we found that they had, in fact, all healed. The second trial was we sought to compare the two soft tissue techniques, so tenotomy versus peel. In this case, it was 100 patients, and we used similar outcome measures, and the main outcome being strength, again, and um, healing was assessed by ultrasound at six and then a second time point later on in the study. And again, what we found was that there wasn't any significant differences, either in terms of strength, the different functional outcome scores that we looked at, or uh, healing rates. So those were that's, those are the main findings of the study. So I guess if we had to summarize it all in a sentence, I think I would just say that what the work has shown is that they're all probably relatively equivalent in terms of strength and i think that they're all probably closely equivalent in terms of function the only thing that i think is still not completely clear in my mind is whether the osteotomy might result in a slightly higher healing rate compared with the soft tissue techniques and there was a um, a recent systematic review that was published a year ago by michael delcor where they what they uh, there were eight studies, I think about 350 patients. They included studies down to level three level of evidence. But what they found is that the healing rate was in fact higher based on that 
meta-analysis of the literature. So I think that's about all we can say at this point. I am. Um, I, I, I wanted to commend you guys for doing these studies. And I think these are a huge amount of work um, and they're incredibly helpful to us as surgeons. Um, I think it's interesting to hear that there's no difference because certainly you see people on the podium who are strong proponents of one or the other technique. George, one of the most interesting findings to me about your studies is that even when the repairs heal, there is some fatty infiltration of the subscapularis. And this is something that falls out of your methodology because you had those CT scans. What do you make of this? I mean, do you think that affects strength? Does it affect outcomes? Does it affect component survival? What do, what do you make yeah. of it? Well, certainly, I mean, the surprising thing was that it does exist every time we uh, tenotomize or osteotomize. And there was no difference between osteotomy and tenotomy in that in that study where we found the fat infiltration increasing after uh, postoperatively. So it does occur. And whether it occurs due to our uh, mobilization technique, I remember being taught how to mobilize a subscapular. So it was, you know, I'd, you know, release the superior aspect, release the anterior, release the intraarticular, and maybe um, those articular branches or those branches that are going to the subscapularis off just lateral to the axial nerve potentially get injured. And so that may be one of the reasons that uh, patients get fat infiltration. Certainly, it has been shown that your subscap strength does not return to normal, um, meaning that when you have patients and compared to the contralateral nor normal side, you suspect that once they get a total shoulder orthoplasty, your subscap strength is going to return to normal, and it doesn't. So the subscapularis is, undergoes irreparable changes after a total shoulder arthroplasty and whether uh it's due to the osteotomy the tenotomy the peel they're all equal what we can't say is i wonder if it's going to be any difference if we actually keep the subscap on during total shoulder arthroplasty one question i think that comes up especially with the popularity of the reverse is will the results in these studies be similar if the studies were performed in patients undergoing reverse instead of anatomic Peter, what are your thoughts? Would the results be replicated or does the does the actual type of arthroplasty influence? Um, and, and presuming you have a subscap, let's just say presuming you have a subscap to repair, um, do, do would the type of implant change your outcomes in a study? Yeah, that, that's a really, really interesting question. So I'm not I'm not sure what the answer is. Uh, I mean, if, if we look to the literature for that, um, Philippe Collin, uh, looked at that question just a month ago or so where they it was an interesting um, prospective uh, series of patients that they followed with reverse and they got ultrasounds on everyone and there were a couple of really interesting things with that study the first was that only 50 percent of the subscapularis tendons healed so that was markedly lower than what we found in our study so i don't know that I really understand the answer to that in terms of why the healing rates seem to be higher on the anatomic side, but they, they do. And the second interesting thing was that they looked at the internal rotation function and internal rotation was substantially better in patients with a, with a healed subscap. So I think that speaks to the benefit of repairing the subscap in the reverse situation, I know George has done some interesting uh, based biomechanics work on function of the cuff in the reverse, and I'm not sure what his thoughts are on this, but certainly from a functional standpoint, the internal rotation was better in the group of patients where the subscap was healed. But interestingly, the functional scores 
were very similar, regardless of whether the, the subscap had healed in that series. So that's that's the only study that I'm aware of that looked at that question, but I think that we need to look at that a bit more carefully in a prospective uh, fashion. I know there's a center doing that right now, so probably in the next couple of years, we're gonna have that, have that data. Now, one of the variations we've seen recently is what we, a lot of us have moved towards stemless components. George, I know you've done a lot of work to understand stemless components, stress shielding. Your trial was conducted with stemmed components. Do you think the results would have been the same with a stemless? Yes, no, what do you think? Uh, well, we actually did just recently publish a paper on stemless. We had 188 stemless uh, total shoulder arthroplasties. We had uh, an equal distribution of tenotomy, peel, and osteotomy, and Will Abender was the senior author or the first author of that, and we found no difference once again. Um, we actually did find something very interesting. So, well, we found no difference in clinical outcomes. Um, one thing that was quite interesting is we found that in patients that underwent the LTO, uh, they seemed to have less stress shielding, which was a little bit of a unique finding. That, I guess, makes sense. If you get bone-to-bone -bone healing, you potentially get normal uh, load transmission back onto that bone rather than if, if the, the tendon doesn't heal back quite as well or it heals in a different position, uh, potentially uh, you get more stress shielding there. Um, it, it's just an interesting finding. Not sure what it means totally. That, that's when I, when I said earlier on that this is what I'm doing in March of 2022 means that uh, maybe in April, I might do osteotomies for uh, stemless implants. Who knows? All right, so we've heard the, the March of 2022 for George. Peter, what's what's your March of 2022? What are you doing right now and why? So, yeah, so believe it or not, I, I've gone back to, to tenotomy as my standard approach. And um, I mean, I think the reason really goes back to what George alluded to earlier in terms of the simplicity of it and the ease in terms of how we're able to teach that to our trainees. I think it's just the most reproducible technique. Osteotomy is... Uh, in my mind, more difficult to do in terms of getting that angle perfect. And I find it very difficult to hand the osteotome over and get anything kind of reproducible in, in uh, trainees who are you know, doing relatively short rotations. So I, I tend to stick with what works, which for me is a tenotomy at the moment. When you guys do your tenotomy or peel, um, how tell us, tell for our, our listeners, especially our younger ones who've probably seen a variety of their mentors teach them how to do the actual repair. How are you doing it? What type of suture, what number, um, how many sutures, what's the configuration? How are you doing it? George, I'll start with you. So I do uh, essentially a very similar technique to what we published in JVJS. Uh, uh, essentially it is three horizontal mattress inverted sutures in a tension band technique tied transosseously over a plate on the greater tuberosity. So it's kind of a, uh, that's a, a word full, but uh, there's, we do have a couple of videos, one on Viumedi, just kind of going through the technique, but tying over a plate has been, um, it, it's, it certainly apply, uh, results in a very strong repair. And Peter, how about you? What's your technique? I tend to use uh, heavy non-absorbable high tensile strength sutures, number two, and I use typically three or four of them in a figure of eight fashion. So those are interrupted figure of eights. If I do a peel or an osteotomy, then I do exactly the technique that we published, which involves a series of inverted mattress sutures 
tied through bone tunnels in the groove and over a mini plate over the greater tuberosity. Well, I want to thank both of you guys for coming on and telling us about your studies, about your experience, about your opinions. I mean, this has been a um, real concise tour de force that leads the listeners through everything they need to know about the subscapularis. Um, I know you both are busy, so we really, you know, the AOCS really values the half hour you donated to us here. And certainly um, it's been, a, it's just been awesome. You guys are really, you guys were just awesome guests. Well, th thank you so, so much for having us. Yeah, very much. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both so much. I want to echo what Pete said. This is um, an amazing amount of knowledge in just, just a little bit of time. And I think our listeners will certainly appreciate that and listening to some of the world's experts when it comes to this topic and so many other topics related to shoulder. That's really all the time we have for today's podcast. We want to thank our guests so much for taking the time to speak with us. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.